The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Before we get started, we want to tell you a bit about the sponsor of this week's History Extra podcast, Warner Hotels. If you're looking to escape to a picturesque corner of the UK for a few days, Warner Hotels has just the thing for you. Each hotel offers everything you could possibly need for the perfect weekend away. From unrivaled leisure facilities and inspiring live entertainment, to delicious dining experiences and plenty of history for you to uncover. If this sounds like your kind of getaway, Warner Hotels is now offering a series of exciting weekend packages in 2024. Each three-night stay is at one of three historic hotels, with dinner, bed and breakfast included, plus a whole itinerary of fascinating talks and Q&As with a selection of BBC history experts, such as Tracy Borman, Susanna Lipscomb and James Holland. So what are you waiting for? Book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's episode, we have another in our recorded lecture series from our Autumn 2019 history events. This time, it's Professor Barry Cunliffe talking about the Scythians, following the publication of his book, the Scythians, Nomad Warriors of the Steppe. While we're not currently holding live events, we are running a series of fortnightly virtual lectures on various different historical subjects. You can find out more about them on our website at historyextra.com forward slash events. Now here's Professor Kernliff taking us on a fascinating tour of this remarkable nomadic society. Now, the Scythians, uh, you'll see the the subheading on that book, Nomad Warriors of the Steppe, uh, because um, people in the West, uh, West of Europe, I mean, uh, on the whole, don't know very much about the Scythians. It's not within uh, our our general knowledge. Uh, If you want to find Scythian material in museums, you'd be pretty hard put to it. There's a small collection tucked away in the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, but not much more anywhere else. We don't have Scythian collections. And uh, some of you, uh, I suspect, will have seen that fabulous exhibition that the British Museum put on about, what, two, three years ago on the Scythians. Um, But before that, the only other time there was any exhibition on the Scythians in Britain was 1978. So um, we are really starved, I think, of of good information, up-to-date information about who these very remarkable people were. Uh, The uh, Greek uh, historian um, Ephorus, writing the 4th century, said that um, the Scythians were one of the four great barbarian peoples of the world, the world known uh, to the Greeks. So one of the four great barbarian peoples. We know about the Celts, 
uh, a lot about the Celts. The Scythians were their near, their near neighbors and um, stretched right across the steppe uh, and were a very, very powerful and important force and an exceptionally interesting people. So um, what I want to do is just to introduce something about them, not a great deal of history, but something about them as people and their way of life. Now, um, is that in, in focus? Yeah, okay. Um, um, where did they, they live? They lived uh, on the steppe. That's this green bit, this uh, dark green bit here that runs from, if you can get your geography, it's not an easy map to understand. There's India down there. Uh, there's the end of the Mediterranean and the Black Sea up there, and China is right over here. So um, they, they ex the steppe extended from Manchuria through Mongolia, right across Kazakhstan to the Caspian and the Black Sea. And then uh, a little bit of steppe ends up, the westernmost bit of the steppe up here in the Great Hungarian Plain. And um, the, the area that the Scythians and Scythian-related peoples were involved in is more or less from the Altai Mountains here uh, westwards. Uh, they, they, they didn't extend, uh, there were different peoples over in the Mongolian steppe. So there, there is our geography. This is rather like a, a great carpet of grass sweeping across uh, Central Asia. Now, um, one thing to remember particularly about this steppe uh, is that um, it differed from the east to the west. Uh, in the east, uh, particularly up here in the um, Altai Mountains and in Mongolia, uh, it, it was particularly dry and cold. But as you began to get further and further and further west, you came into the, the um, influence of the airstreams that were blowing across the Atlantic and across Europe, these milder, damper airstreams. So in other words, the further uh, west you got, the grass was greener, literally, the grass was greener. So there was always a, a, a momentum of people from this area moving. <coughs> always people were moving, and they were always moving from east across to west. And the bit that they usually ended up in was the great Hungarian plain. So um, this is one of the themes that is so important. These are people on the move. They're pastoralists. They're not agriculturalists. They're not bound to the land. Uh, they are... Uh, controlled by the environment in which they live, which is this wonderful grassland sweeping right across. This is a, a view I took in Mongolia, but it's the same sort of grassland. Uh, this is pure steppe, wonderful steppe. Um, we were out just one afternoon on, on horses just going across the steppe to, to get some flavor of what it was like. And um, uh, writers um, in the 19th century, um, writing about the steppe, kept on saying it's, it's one of these endless places. Uh, you can't stop in the steppe. It draws you on, it draws you on, it draws you on all the time. M movement is what the steppe is about. And these people were about movement, as we will see. And if, you, if you're on, on a horse here, you know, you look across this fantastic sweep of grassland and you want to move. You want to go on and you want to go on and you want to go on. There's nothing stopping you. Um, you're drawn on the whole time. Now, the other thing about the steppe uh, is that this was the natural environment of wild horses. Uh, the horse was the prime animal of the steppe. 
and it served people in absolutely every way. Horses milk. If anyone's been to Mongolia, uh, you will have um, drunk the fermented asses milk or, or horses milk, which is, um, uh, I was going to say a delight, but um, it, it's a surprise anyway. Um, uh, but um, uh, the horse provided milk, it provided meat, and after about the third millennium, uh, fourth millennium BC, it provided traction. So until about the fourth millennium, people were herding horses and other animals on the steppe, but essentially on foot. And then sometime in the middle of the fourth millennium, some bright lad had the idea of jumping on one of these horses and found that it worked really rather well uh, and that you could go much further and much faster on horseback. So um, that, that whole business of riding starts in the steppe uh, way back in, in the fourth millennium. Um, but until you get to about a 1,000 um, BC. Until then, the, um, um, the economy essentially was following animals. It was a simple economy. The animals um, were the, provided everything you needed and uh, you were able to trade with neighbours to get the things you couldn't get from the animals in your environment. But it was a simple economy of, of mobile pastoralists. Then, in about 1000 BC, 1900 BC, um, there was quite an important change in climate. And climate change, uh, which we all talk about these days, is, is vitally important in understanding the past. Um, and uh, in, in this area, well, I can explain it, um, why climate change is so important. This is a little, um, the map is a bit of the um, Altai Mountains, that mountainous bit that broke up the steppe. And what you see there is the um, a river valley, the Minusinks Valley, uh, and um, this is the Minusinks Basin, with areas of steppe, um, sort of pasture land, good, uh, rich pasture land with mountains around. So you've got various areas of, of, of steppe land. And it shows you there um, the, the burial mounds in the steppe land. Now, um, it was um, probably in this, this area and adjacent areas, and we're, uh, geographically we're in Siberia now, southern Siberia. It was in this area that um, society began to change because the, the climate changed quite, quite fast here in the 10th, 9th centuries. And what happened was it became a lot, a lot moister uh, and a lot um, warmer. And that meant that the... Uh, grass grew m much more lushly, uh, and life became easier. Uh, and with easy life, population grew and grew and grew. And with the growth of um, population sort of takes off in a particular area, population um, uh, growth takes off, and it has a momentum. Uh, and quite often it, it takes you beyond the holding capacity of the land, and the land can no longer support you. Uh, and what happens here is you, you find the development of what I've called a pr predatory society, a society that is no longer a simple pastoral society, but one that takes to warfare and takes to raiding, uh, and that the bands of young men now, because life is comparatively easy, but they're under pressure, uh, tend to take off and start raiding neighbours and bringing animals and wives and things back uh, to their homeland and then going off and raiding again. So this is the beginning. Climate change here uh, creates a change in society that makes it warlike 
Uh, and the horse, of course, is absolutely crucial. And this is really where the Scythian way of life starts in this basin. And you can see some of the, the, the um, weapons here that, that represent this. The arrows, which are very important, these little daggers, uh, small daggers, and this very effective weapon, the battle axe. Here's, here's a battle axe. On, on, would have been on a long stick. Very effective for sort of... Um, making holes in people's heads. Uh, when you're, you're sort of riding with your horse, you've got a long-handled battle axe, you can uh, take a swipe at them. Uh, and very effective. And you do actually find skulls with um, holes in about the size of battle axe uh, ends. So you know that they were being used. So um, here the, here's the archaeology of this predatory society. And we find, too, that some people were getting richer and richer and richer and more and more powerful in society, presumably because they were successful at raiding. Uh, and so you get a hierarchy building up. Once you've got a hierarchy in society, um, then the, the, the young men at the, the lower end of that hierarchy want to aspire to the upper end, uh, and this sort of exacerbates uh, the development of this predatory way of life. Now, um, we see this hierarchy brilliantly in this, this grave. It's a place called Artanda, and it's in, um, this is Artand 1, and it's in Siberia, southern Siberia. Uh, and you can see in the plan what, it's, what it is. This is a plan of a barrow, um, a mound, a big burial mound, uh, which is about um, 60, 70 kilometers, uh, meters <laughs> across. Uh, and um, there is a chamber, a wooden chamber in the center, uh, and this sort of structure of, of timbers uh, coming all, all, all the way out. Uh, and the whole thing was covered by a, a low mound. Now, in the, the center, um, you have a grave chamber there, uh, which had the, the chieftain in it. And around him, these were the graves, the coffins of his retainers, all the people who were used to him, who were killed, presumably at the time of his death, so that they could accompany him to the afterlife. And here were his horses were placed. And here's some of the wonderful art uh, that is associated with this burial, this animal full of biting its own backside, recurved on itself. And this is a theme that runs through Scythian art. Um, and just a few facts. Um, these timbers, for example, um, uh, were... 100-year-old timbers when they were cut, and there were about 6,000 of them. So 6,100-year-old trees were cut down just to make that structure. Uh, that involved a great deal of effort and manpower, person power. And then uh, within the compartments, um, there were horses. You can see some of them shown uh, with their, their gear. 150 horses were brought in here in addition to his own uh, special horses. 150 were brought in and slaughtered. Uh, and just buried in this grave. So you get some idea of how important this person was. Right at the top, a king, a chief, or something like that. Um, and the fascinating thing about the horses that were brought in is that they had um, very distinctive horse gear, and archaeologists can show that they were not necessarily, not all local horses at all, that many of them were being brought in from kilometers and kilometers away. Um, so here was a person who had power over uh, huge areas, and when he died, 
Um, his wife, or female, was killed. Um, his servants were killed. His horses were killed. And then all the people from countryside all around brought in gifts of horses and things of value, uh, which were buried in his grave. So here is the kind of society you see developing. This is 9th century uh, AD, uh, BC, BC, BC. Um, and then this is in the same cemetery. This is Artanda II. Um, and uh, an excavation going on now, you can see, uh, it was only a few years ago, that excavation. Uh, the importance of this one is that the grave chamber, which you can just about see there, uh, was completely intact. In Artand one, it had been robbed out. And here, the grave is intact. There are the timbers of the grave. And there is the chieftain uh, and his female companion uh, lying there, absolutely covered in gold uh, and precious stones. Masses and masses of gold, uh, some big pieces of gold, but um, his cloak um, was um, sewn with little animals in gold about a centimetre long. They were stitched on to presumably the, well, the fabric of, of his clothing, so he would have just glittered as, as, as he moved. And um, I was, um, for, in the research for this book, I was in the museum in St. Petersburg, in the Hermitage Museum, and I, I was actually in the office of the, the archaeologist who had uh, dug this grave and uh, talking to him about it, um, a man called Juganov. Uh, and um, he, he and I was asking about these little figures, and I was asking were they were, were they mass produced or were they individually produced, and so. And he said, "Well, would you like to see them?" And I said, "Yes, please." And it was an ordinary old office, you know, a, a normal sort of office. And he had a rather battered filing cabinet there, so he pulled out the drawer in the filing cabinet and took out a box, took the lid off, and there they all were—hundreds of these little Scythian gold animals. And we spent ages, wonderful time, one of the most exciting times in my life, picking them up and looking at them and comparing them to see whether they, they were mass-produced or not. Um, so. Uh, you know, you can, you can relate uh, to, to these people uh, and their lives um, through their artifacts very, very, very closely, very well. Now, um, we've been talking so far of the um, Scythian-related peoples um, who started off this, this sort of um, great flood of, of um, mobile um, raiding horsemen. And then th that continues for a thousand years. Um, and constantly you get, as I say, this movement uh, from, from the east, from somewhere up here. We were talking about that area up there, right across Asia uh, to, to the Black Sea and then eventually beyond the Black Sea. Now, there is a, a slight complication here in that the people have got different names. And this is the world... Um, as it was seen by, say, the Greeks and the Persians about 500 BC. Um, the Greeks, of course, lived, uh, well, Greece is down just off the map, but uh, the Greeks controlled this area and they controlled the Black Sea, the fringe of the Black Sea. So they were in direct relation to the Scythian peoples there. And then at the same time, the Persians um, had conquered this whole area. The Persians starting off in Iran here had conquered this area. And they were controlling these people called Saka, who the Persians say are the same as the Scythians. So they had different names. So in other words, we are dealing with a very similar lot of people who were known by different names, but they were all very, very similar indeed. And these are the names that the Greeks 
uh, knew. They, they had some idea of geography. And there were Greek travelers going through this area and bringing back information. And you see, they've got proper names here for some of these people. And then they begin to tail off. So you haven't, they don't know what these people are called, but they were uh, gold-guarding griffins. This is what the, the, the Greeks thought they were. These are the sort of travelers' tales coming back. So the further away you are from, from Greece, the less you know about the people. Um, now, what, what we find is that, um, uh, as I say, the, these, these people, these Saka were, were Sidonis uh, um, and uh, Masageti and all the rest on um, Soromati, um, were all very, very similar. Uh, and the situation you, you hear of is, is that people move, um, uh, Greek writers tell us that th these people moved into the territory of these, that knocked these people on and they moved on a bit further and then these moved and attacked the, uh, the Scythians, the raw Scythians and, and so on. There was a sort of constant domino falling uh, effect of, of people moving from the east and shoving out their neighbors and them moving into the next area and them moving into the next area. And this went on all the way through the first millennium um, BC. And it makes it very difficult to write a history of this uh, because all we've got is what the Persians and the Greeks uh, began to learn about it. But we can very much write a, an archeology span and an anthropology. Now, one of, one of the earliest groups of Scythians the Greeks tell us about moved from somewhere up here uh, and they moved down into this area. This is, that's the Caucasus Mountains. So they moved north of the Caucasus uh, and into um, the Pontic Steppe. So the Greeks tell us about this. Uh, so this is an historic fact. And um, here is this group that has moved into, uh, there's the Caucasus Mountains, moved into that area. The green are their tombs. Uh, and the arrows show where they, they moved, where some of them moved. And the Greeks write about this, and so do the Assyrians. The Assyrians who were occupying this area were being, uh, this area here, were being attacked by the people here from Uratu. Um, so there was a, a massive battle going on. And the Scythians, um, for them, this was great. You know, there, was, there was action south of the Caucasus. So what did they do? They jumped on their horses and they came through and they offered their services uh, to the Oratians and to the Assyrians uh, in their battle. So we hear about them. They're mentioned in, in clay tablets and, and mentioned by the Greeks and so on. Uh, uh, so this is where we first pick up our information about them. And we know, too, that um, after, uh, some of them will have just done it for the season, you know, when there was... Um, nothing to do after a dull winter. You get on your horse, you go through the Caucasus and, and start beating people up and, and looting, and then you go back home again. Some of them stayed for longer. And there was one group that uh, we were told stayed for longer. They stayed for 28 years down here fighting. And then when they went back, uh, their wives weren't particularly pleased about this. These hoary old battle-scarred warriors coming back after 28 years. Their wives had married um, all the servants and, and, and so on and had children of their own. Uh, so there was a confrontation uh, and the, the young men of, of the homeland um, confronted their, their fathers and, and grandfathers uh, and tried to stop them coming home. And there was a, a big battle that the Greeks write about. The old men won, I'm glad to say. Um, <laughs> Uh, but um, when, when they were uh, down, down here, um, uh, they related to the people of Uratu. 
uh, and uh, the, the um, people, uh, the, the craftsmen who were making weapons down here started making weapons for the Assyrians uh, and um, probably went back with them. So we get these wonderful, fabulous beasts, sort of part fish, part deer, part human, um, um, decorating this wonderful sword in, in gold, a gold scabbard, um, made presumably by a craftsman down here, but found in a burial up here. So they, they were uh, using the craftsmen and ideas of the people they came into contact with. Um, some of them settled, uh, some of these people settled in, oh, that's the lot we were looking at there in the Caucasus. Uh, others settled here in the steppe, uh, what, what is now Ukraine uh, and the Crimea. And some went through the steppe uh, into the, what's called the forest steppe, the edge of it. And these different colours just represent um, archaeologically distinct groups of Scythians. So there was no sort of one group. Uh, there were lots of different groups, and their archaeology is all just slightly different. And their economies are slightly different. And some of them actually moved through um, the Carpathian Mountains here into Transylvania, in, into Romania, and settled. And others moved over further into the great Hungarian plain and settled. And those are the westernmost Scythians that we, we find. So uh, what we know about particularly are this lot here because the Greeks lived all the way around the Black Sea and were in contact with them. Now, here are um, some images. Uh, the horse was of crucial importance. Uh, and on this lovely, um, it's a, a big sort of um, uh, jug uh, from Chetomlik, you see people... Scythians relating to horses. The horse was so important. There's a chap down there hobbling his horse so he can't move. There's one up there trying to train it to, to, to kneel down and, and lie down. And this sort of horse training session is, is there around the top of the jug. Um, you see, too, the, um, the, the, the typical Scythian uh, here with long hair and beard uh, and wearing trousers. Of course, he's a horseman. He wears trousers. He's got soft, soft boots on. Uh, and he has a sort of long cloak. You can see it particularly on this one, a, a good horse-riding cloak that sort of covers your legs and, but doesn't get in the way of them when you're on your horse. And there are the, these two wonderful gold plaques, again, showing typical Scythians um, with you know, their, their dress, a sort of quilted, um, probably made of, of um, skins, hides, uh, and felt to, to make it warm. Uh, you get this idea of sort of quilting on their, their coats uh, and their, their soft shoes and so on, um, and spearing things. Um, and, and it reminds us that um, one of their great delights was chasing hares and, um, across the steppe and, and trying to kill them. And here you can see a hare sort of trying to hide in the corner of this plaque while this guy is, is about to throw his spear at it. Um, and uh, there is a famous story told when the Scythian group of Scythians meet Darius the Great, the Persian king, Darius the Great, uh, in the steppe. Um, and Darius is sort of chasing them, and they're moving away all the time. And Darius is really fed up because he wanted a good pitch battle with them. And eventually they came together for a pitch battle. It looked to the, the Scythians were ready to attack him. And uh, he, he reckoned he would do well in that sort of confrontation. Um, and a hare 
ran in front of the Scythian warriors, and they forgot about the Persians and started chasing their hair, uh, much, much to the annoyance of the Persians who, who had lost their, who you know, didn't have their battle after all, couldn't get people to co confront them. So um, we, the, the archaeology, the, the classical texts, nicely combine to give us an impression of these people. Now, the bow and arrow was, was of crucial importance to them. Um, the, uh, there is the bow. Uh, it's a recurved bow. That's it. It's made of strips of wood and bone um, glued together. Uh, and that's the natural shape of it. And then to string it, you've got to sort of bend it back, and, and the string is under immense tension. And, and so is the string when you pull it. And we've got this wonderful picture here of a Scythian. She's wearing um, a sort of pointed um, helmet, uh, a point, pointed hat. Um, there are his soft shoes and his trousers and so on, a typical Scythian. And he's stringing his bow. And he's got his bow here. Um, uh, he's got it um, in one hand. He's got it on his uh, right leg. And he's using his left leg to push the bow down so he can string it across. It shows us uh, how he's doing it. Um, and uh, we know that they carried their bows and arrows in a thing called a goritus. Here's a goritus. Uh, which is a sort of quiver uh, and bow case combined. And there is a bow sticking out. Here, here you can see it better on, on this, this little coin, uh, the goritas by the side, where the arrows were in the front and the bow was in the top. And you could whip it out quite, quite quickly with your uh, right hand when you needed it and shove it back in again. It was a short bow, I should stress. You need a short bow if you're uh, riding horses. Um, the arrows, we find the arrowheads. Uh, made of bronze, uh, they are multi-lobate, uh, you know, tri-lobate quite often. Um, and uh, th this little group has got a, a, a rather clever little hook attached to it, um, so that if you're fighting and you've got two or three of these arrows stuck in you and you pull them out, you sort of rip the wound open, and it's, it's, it's quite an effective form of, um, of um, attack using arrows. Um, they also, so, so Herodotus tells us, um, uh, knew how to make poison. They had poisoned arrows. And what they did was to get a poisonous, poisonous snakes, uh, female snakes, uh, when they were pregnant. So their venom was really tough, strong. And they would get the venom out of the snakes and tip it into the cauldrons of blood and then just leave them buried in the ground for weeks to ferment and, 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 and so on. And, and the, the resulting liquor after a few weeks, was really noxious, so they dipped their arrows in it, uh, and that would kill anyone straight away. Um, so uh, they, they, they were effective fighters. Uh, we saw him stringing his bow. Um, the interesting thing is he's already got his bow in his goritas there. You can just see it. So he's stringing a bow for someone else or showing them how to do it. This comes from this lovely little uh, gold beaker from Kul'oba uh, on, on the Black Sea coast. Uh, and the other scenes from it are, are fantastic. Uh, here is one bandaging, bandaging the leg of another. Here are two in, in sort of friendly relationship. Uh, this one is almost sort of patting the, the foot of his friend there. And here is this fantastic scene. Goodness knows what he's doing, but he's probably helping his friend up with toothache or something like that. Um, so, so all the little scenes here are of companionship, which is a very important part 
of the, the, the social system in the Scythian world. Um, to have a blood brother was extremely important, particularly if you went into battle, you always had someone looking out for you uh, if you had a blood brother. And this scene here, not, not a couple of uh, drunken yobs, um, uh, these are uh, two Scythians in, engaged in becoming blood brothers. And again, we have the description of how they do it. Um, they cut their wrists and bleed into a, a container, a cup or a horn of, of wine. And then they both drink together from the horn of wine. And in that way, they become blood brothers. But as I say, this is incredibly important if you're um, fight, leading this way of life and you go into battle. Um, there is always a friend somewhere who is watching your back while you're watching the backs of your friends. Uh, and uh, that gives you a, a security uh, in the fighting. Time for another quick chat about this week's sponsor, Warner Hotels. If you want to get away in 2024, why not book a weekend package at one of Warner's most historic hotels? There's Little Coat House, which is a stunning Tudor manor in Hungerford, Studley Castle, a beautiful 19th century building in Warwickshire, or Home Lacey, a huge Herefordshire mansion that was once visited by Charles I. Whichever location you choose, you'll be able to enjoy a whole weekend of live talks from your favourite historians during your stay. Find out more and book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com extra. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Now, um, let's leave that bit for a moment and move back into the uh, Altai Mountains. This is back into southern Siberia, where the archaeology is, is amazing. Uh, this is the actual area of a place called Pazirik, uh, which is a cemetery, uh, just a cemetery. Here is a lovely step, and then it goes into woodland, as you see. Uh, and there is one of the barrows, the, the Kurgans, a burial mound of, of a Scythian. Um, and uh, what, what we find when it's excavated, these, these were excavated um, in the 1930s and again uh, in the mid-1940s. Uh, in between that time, the archaeologists had been imprisoned by Stalin, and then they were let out again. Um, I, I don't know what they'd done wrong, but um, they, so there are two periods of excavation. What they found were, um, if you look through this, uh, at this section here, there was a pit dug in the ground, and in that pit there was a, a sort of log cabin constructed. We've seen that in other graves. Log cabin constructed there. Here is the log cabin. Uh, between the log cabin uh, and the edge of the pit 
all your goods, all the goods of the dead person are, are, are packed. This is a wheeled vehicle and, and lots of other things. Yeah, so all your worldly goods are packed around there and you have your own very personal things in the log cabin. Now, what, what is um, very important about this site is that the land at the moment and until now um, has been what is called permafrost in that um, when the, um, the ground freezes uh, uh, in the winter and freezes to a very considerable depth, several metres depth, um, and uh, during the summer it will thaw out. But if you build a mound over it, um, it insulates it so the ground underneath that mound never thaws out. And that, that is very important because it means that everything buried in these graves has been, as it were, in a deep freeze since it was put in the ground about 400 BC. Uh, and it is perfectly preserved. Um, why, why this is, uh, well, it, you can see how it is important. You've got all this material that you, you don't have anywhere else, all the organic material. But the problem is, of course, uh, with climate, um, global warming, um, the permafrost is beginning to um, unfreeze so that gradually all these graves that are so perfectly preserved, and there are lots of cemeteries uh, in this area, um, all the organic material, uh, once the climate gets warmer, will start to rot. So there'll be lots of jobs for archaeologists out in Siberia if you ever want one. Um, now, uh, the, the preservation is, as I say, extremely good. Uh, and even the bodies are preserved. These are archive photographs of the 1930s. And you can see that one. There is the human with his toes poking out. Um, pretty well preserved, head um, well preserved in, in his wooden um, uh, coffin uh, carved from a single tree trunk. And here is a female from one of the burials. And you can see she's been sliced down the back and across the shoulders. Uh, and then sewn up again, roughly sewn up again. Um, and inside, um, some of the muscle tissue was taken away, but the um, organs were removed, and she was stuffed with um, straw and herbs and so on. And Herodotus tells us about this on the step, um, a wonderful description of how when the king dies, they open up the body and they take up the bits that are going to rot quickly, um, and they, they fill him up with, um, with nice-smelling herbs and so on and sew him up. And then in that area, they carry him um, from one tribe to another to another to another so that all the tribes can see that the king is dead. It's very important for people to know that the king is dead uh, so that they can cope with a change of, of rule. It's rather like um, um, kings and queens of England um, until, well, Queen Mother, in fact, lying in state. It's the same idea as lying in state. You see that the, the, the monarch is dead. Um, uh, another reason why it was, may have been done in the Altai Mountains is if you died in the winter, uh, no one could dig a hole to bury you. Uh, so you had to hang around uh, until the ground was soft enough um, in, in, in the summer for the burial to take place. So you may well have had to store um, grandfather for you know, several months, and um, this was a better way to store them than, than just as complete bodies. So um, we, we learn a lot about uh, how they viewed the body, how important the body was, um, and um, 
certainly the sort of the, the way in which the body was used um, to to tell stories, perhaps, and and to proclaim history. Um, little, you know, we I think we can understand that from from our, our perspectives as well. Um, some of the bodies, um, the skin was perfectly preserved, uh, and they were tattooed, heavily tattooed. There is a, a brilliant example, again from Paziric, where you see the, the tattoos drawn out. Not all the skin was preserved, but um, the shoulders, particularly in one of the legs, were very well preserved and heavily tattooed. And here is a bit of his shoulder. This is actually his skin. Uh, and you can see here, if you can make it out, there is the head of a deer, uh, um, well, a cervid of some sort, and, and probably a deer. And there is its front leg, and there is its body turned around with its two back legs there, and its tail, and, and its horns, uh, antlers, sorry, uh, spreading right across the back in a sort of symbolic way. Um, so this animal is, t is turned into a very energetic piece of design. Uh, and many of the other animals are like that. They're not just straight representations of animals. They're animals in contorted, um, tense positions. Now, um, th this guy going round, um, uh, uh, if his uh, tattoos were exposed, um, people would be able to learn a lot about him. People who knew uh, would be able to read him. Uh, because these tattoos presumably related to um, his, in, his heritage uh, and his associations with other tribes, possibly his marriage relationships, and so on. His history would have been put uh, on, on his body so that people could read it, rather better than sort of Bill Loves Mary. But it's, uh, you know, it really is a way of communicating, which we forget about. And a person moving from one place to another would communicate that style of art. So you can see how art could move very, very quickly. Um, I was told a story recently, and I, I can't remember the, the name of the thing. Those little boxes of black and white squares, what, what are they called? Um, uh, you, you know, it's rather like a barcode, but it's not a barcode. You know, the sort of thing that you can photograph with your phone. Right, those. Well, um, uh, someone I, I heard uh, was making T-shirts, personalised T-shirts, so that um, uh, young people going to uh, parties uh, could have all their information about themselves encrypted on, on, on one of those, on the back of their T-shirts, uh, so that um, if you saw someone you rather liked the look of, you would sort of take a photograph of that uh, and find out all about them. Uh, and this is absolutely real. It's very similar uh, to this. It's, it's communicating communicating a lot about yourself. Um, and, and I suppose we all do it I in, to some extent in the way we wear jewellery or dress or have our haircuts or, or, or so on. We're always trying to communicate about ourselves. Well, that's a form of communication. Um, wonderful, um, uh, still in Paziric, wonderful things preserved. These, this is a saddle cloth, you see, with, with these beautiful <coughs> animals uh, set on it. Uh, sewn onto it, and tassels of horsehair, brilliantly coloured. And here, um, a, a bridle, uh, there's the, the bit, uh, but all of intricately carved wood. And all of this, of course, we wouldn't get in a normal sort of archaeological context. It's only because these things are preserved by the frost that we get them. Uh, also a cloak, uh, a fine cloak made of 
um, pine, pine marten and, and um, sable, uh, little strips of, of fur sewn together uh, with uh, elaborate decoration on it. Uh, and here, this is a remarkable shoe um, with, in the sole, inset pieces of marcasite. That's you know, fool's gold, that shiny gold-like uh, mineral. Um, and it's a reminder, of course, uh, that people sat on the floor uh, and the soles of their feet showed when you, if you were uh, squatting on the floor. So you decorate those as well. So th this is sort of indoor wear, uh, but it, it shows your position in society. And then um, this, this remarkable uh, thing, uh, a, a um, bronze container with um, burnt stones in it, uh, in a, a uh, sort of tent. Um, Herodotus talks about these things, uh, and this tent would have a skin on it, and in there, and, and you would put your head inside un, under the skin, or go inside if it was big enough, and on those burning stones, you would throw seeds of hemp. And here are the seeds of hemp that were found, and there is the container for the hemp seeds. And um, you would sort of get high on, on the hemp. And um, Herodotus describes this as the end of the burial ritual. When you purify yourself after all the burial is done, uh, you purify yourself in this way and um, really um, you know, get, get a high. But it takes you from the, the world, this liminal world you've been working in of the dead, uh, back into the world of the living. Um, some of the great mounds that they created, um, we're back now on the steppe itself. Um, some of the great mounds were um, huge. This is uh, Chertomlik, uh, this one, uh, a painting as it was before excavation. You can see this is another one of the great mounds with the Russians excavating. This is um, Sochia, I think. Um, uh, uh, Solochka, sorry, Solochka. Um, and you've seen the ma massive mounds, but this one is huge. Um, and, it's made, uh, and it's built over the burials. The burials are in these chambers underneath. But it's the mound that I'm fascinated by. Um, that, they're built of turf. Um, it, not just digging you know, any old rubble you could get from around the mound to make the mound big. Um, you cut turves for kilometers around and bring those turves in and build the mound. Um, for Chetomlik, this one, the top one we see, um, they reckon that there is uh, a million turves have been cut to make it. These turves would have been quite, quite big things. Um, and uh, so imagine the number of people, or the number of people days needed to do that. Uh, and it would devastate the grassland for miles and miles and miles around. Um, now, why? Um, one possibility is that they're, what they're trying to do is to give their dead leader um, pasture land. Um, they're collecting the pasture land and bringing the pasture in and piling it up over his burial. So that's his pasture land in, in the, the world to come. Uh, it's only a suggestion, but it's, it's a, a, a tolerable one. Um, I haven't time really to go into the gods in any detail. They did have gods. Um, they uh, worshipped a god of war. They worshipped these snake-bodied um, uh, female deities. And we see them on uh, gold work, but we don't know very much about them. Um, we're not told a great deal about them. But they had these deities. 
And they also had um, uh, a deity that we can recognize here. This is a carpet from Pazirik, where uh, you have a, a goddess um, sitting uh, by the tree of life and this hero um, riding towards her. Um, and again, again, exactly the same story here on this gold uh, from thousands of kilometers away. This is from, the north, uh, from Ukraine. Uh, there is the goddess sitting full frontal in this case. There is the tree of life. And here is the hero on his horse riding towards her. And this, this sort of pervades the mythology of the Scythians. The idea that there is a goddess, and it might be a snaky-tailed goddess or a seated goddess or a winged goddess, and the hero or god um, comes uh, to her uh, and they combine and have children and one of those children is the one that starts off the, the Scythians. It's the origin of, of the Siths. But uh, I just wish we could know more. What we do have are these, also these wonderful predatory scenes in the art. Um, here's a horse with a couple of griffins attacking it, or a deer there with a leopard, you've spotted leopard, sort of gawing it. And these are just sort of cutouts uh, of felt from um, uh, fabrics in, in Pazirik. The same story, these felines, uh, these two felines attacking deer, or a, a bird attacking a deer. And this is typical of, Celt uh, of, of Scythian art, this predatory art where the, the wild world is attacking uh, the more domesticated world, the world of the horse or the deer or some, something like that. They're, they're, they're in, in locked in conflict. Um, and it does actually spread that kind of art uh, into Europe with the Scythians, and it begins to pervade Celtic art as well. And there the, we've got a wooden roundel, um, just a roundel with this fierce bird. There's its wing, and there is its eye and beak, and there is another bird underneath here. So these two birds around a roundel. And here on this shield boss, there is the bird with its eye and the beak, and its wings now turned into... Celtic art, its wings there and there, and here is the other bird on the other side. So exactly the same sort of concept, um, about 4,000 kilometers apart. Uh, this one uh, in the Altai Mountains, this one in the River Thames. Um, uh, this is the Wandsworth Shield Boss, the Celtic Wandsworth Shield Boss, just to show that this Celtic animal art, uh, this Scythian animal art uh, does come into uh, the Western European world and, and is uh, well represented. Now, um, how do the, does, does it end? Um, the Scythians um, living, forget all the arrows at the moment, the Scythians living down here uh, are invaded by people called Sarmatians and then the whole lot mix up. The Sarmatians move against uh, the Romans, uh, so they have a fight down in this area and so on. The Roman world takes over. The last of the Scythian-like peoples that we know about are the Alans, and the Alans um, lived in this pink area for a while. So they lived, they, they had pushed out the, Scyth uh, the, the Scythians, but they were horse riders just like the Scythians, and they lived here. And then come the Huns from much further over, from um, probably Mongolia. And the Huns move in in 370 AD and push out the Alans. And some of the Alans then join in the marauding hordes 
uh, that in the late 4th century and early 5th century are destroying the Roman world. And if you follow the Alans here, they attack um, through the Alps and they attack right across France uh, into Iberia. So the last of these uh, warlike, Scythian-like uh, peoples um, are, get right over uh, to the Atlantic seaboard. Um, a few of them uh, get down here into the Caucasus, and the last remaining sort of vestige of Scythian society is actually here in the North Caucasus, where um, the Alans um, sort of hold up in, in the mountains, uh, and uh, the, this is Ossetia now, North Ossetia uh, in modern geography. Uh, and in, in the Ossetian language, uh, you still have the Sarmatho-Scythian uh, uh, word, word. So that's where the, you've got the last remnant of the Scythians. So there they are in all their glory. Um, people very different from us, very different from us. Um, wedded to their horses, wedded to a way of life that is very special to the steppe. And why I think uh, they are well worth our while studying is that they do represent a way of life totally different from ours. We are sedentary people, um, food-producing sedentary people, and our ancestors have been for thousands of years. The Scythians were never food-producing sedentary people. They were uh, always nomadic, and their lifestyle was nomadic, uh, and their belief systems were nomadic. They were different from us. And we can understand ourselves, I think, as always, uh, in opposition to others. If we understand the complexity of, of humans, I think we better understand ourselves. And that's a very good reason for studying the Scythians. Thank you very much. <clears throat>
who sort of move into other people's territories and take over that territory as their own. But that ruling clan is a small clan, and they might give their name to that territory, replacing that of others. We've got that hint of that under the, as the royal Siths, as you probably notice on one of those maps. Um, there was a royal tribe of Scythians. So, um, uh, so that was one of the, the, the top clans who gave their name. And, and the, the Greeks, you know, f faced with this great complex mass of people, um, picked up a name and Scythians and dumped it on them. So, uh, to some extent, rather like Celts, Scythians is a construct, um, uh, but it's a construct that helps us contain our archaeology. And, and the remarkable thing to me is what Herodotus is telling us, and, and other Greeks are telling us, about the Scythians close to the Pontic steppe, is so carefully matched uh, by the archaeology of people right across this great swathe. So I, I think, you know, I, I periodically said Scythian-like or Scythian-style peoples, uh, just, just to remind ourselves uh, that the, the royal Siths were very special uh, within this area. But the, the culture um, really does stretch from one end to the other. Okay, you've got a question up there, and then we'll come to this one. The superb um, level of their artwork, particularly their metalwork, does to me, indicates some sort of um, sedentary uh, civilization. Did, did someone sort of stay home and, and do the artwork? Ah, yes. I, I suddenly panicked when I was looking at the time and, and cut out a bit. Um, uh, quite a lot of the, uh, the gold work we were looking at um, from the Pontic Steppe area, um, there is a big debate uh, about um, where it was made. Um, the, 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 the generally accepted view, it was made by Greek craftsmen uh, for the Scythian elite. Uh, and these were the Greek craftsmen living around the Pontic steppe area. And, and the Greek view is that the, uh, uh, the, uh, so the classics, classical view is that these were um, Greek craftsmen living in the Greek cities, um, dealing with uh, Scythian clients. Um, rather than the Scythians themselves doing it. Uh, I think a better, a, 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 possibly a more reasonable way of looking at it is that these were certainly Greek-trained craftsmen who were working specifically for a Scythian audience, um, but they could well have been in the entourages of the Scythian kings themselves. So um, in the same way as I showed you the Oratian gold and mentioned that they may have taken these craftsmen back. So the, the craft skills of the gold workers there, the metal workers, <clears throat> were very much Greek-trained, but they were at enormous pains to depict the Scythians as, they, as different, as they were, and as uh, the sort of pictures we get from other sources as well. So the simple answer, uh, probably Greek-trained craftsmen for much of it, but when you get into the uh, Altai Mountains, uh, all that wonderful carved wood and, 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 and so on, uh, all that is, is native indigenous, um, uh, done, done presumably by, by the craft, craftspeople, men and women, um, in, in the winters when, there is, when they're not out looking after the animals. Okay, I think there was a question down here in the second row. Do we know much about the role of women in these Yeah. Yes, we do. Um, that, that's one of the uh, very interesting things about Scythian society. Um, they're much less, um, they're much more gender flexible uh, than, than we uh, Western societies until comparatively recently. Um, they, uh, the women uh, among some of the Scythians 
Um, but they were powerful. They were powerful women. There are queens mentioned, um, as well as kings. And one queen uh, killed um, Cyrus the Great and, and, and chopped off his head. Um, uh, and um, uh, the Sarmatians, we're told, um, one particular group of, of the, the, these Scythian-like peoples, um, had the rule that uh, a female could not marry until she had killed an enemy first. Uh, so that, um, and this is where we get the idea of the Amazon, you know, the who uh, cauterizing the breast so that it doesn't get in the way of the the um, bowstring, uh, the, the the warrior female, and this this um, one or two Greek writers pick pick up and talk about, and you do in the archaeology actually find this, you find female burials with all the warrior gear as well, so so that females can easily move in to the warrior um, level. Uh, and become rulers in their in their own right. And similarly, the males, um, there are a group of uh, males called effeminates, um, and they bla- um, the Greek writers blame it on too much horse riding. Um, but um, uh, they, they, what, which may actually be true. But um, but um, the, these effeminates are, are people who uh, are believed to have special powers. And these often become the priests and the shaman and, and have a, a real status in society. So, as I said, much more gender flexibility uh, among the Scythians than one would have imagined in the ancient world. OK, I think we have one more question. Uh, there's just one here. What do we know about their language? Um, it was an Indo-European language, um, and it was, they call it, um, uh, well, it, it's related to the Iranian um, language branch of Indo-European, um, and um, uh, this would take a long time to to go into in detail. But but um, the, there is one view that Indo-European started in the steppe, and there is another view that Indo-European started south of the Caucasus. And I, I believe south of the Caucasus has it on a, a, a lot of new um, ancient DNA evidence. Uh, but the um, uh, Indo-European language from the south of the Caucasus was spreading in, into the steppe uh, in the third um, millennium BC. Uh, so you get a lot of interaction there, and that's how I think um, the Indo-European uh, reached the steppe land, and, and um, they were speaking a dialect of, of Indo-European uh, at that stage, which was closely related to, to Iranian, which is sort of south of the uh, Caucasus. So that, that, that's the, the basic answer. That was Barry Cunliffe speaking at our 2019 History Weekend events. His book, The Scythians, Nomad Warriors of the Steppe, is out now, published by Oxford University Press. If you enjoyed this talk, we'll be running lectures from our history events every Saturday on the podcast for the next few weeks. And be sure to go to historyextra.com forward slash events for news of our upcoming virtual lecture series. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back tomorrow with an episode on everything you wanted to know about the suffragettes. Before you go, one final word about this week's sponsor, Warner Hotels. If you fancy a break in 2024, you can now choose from three fantastic weekend packages at some of the most historic Warner hotels. For instance, Littlecote House is set in a stunning location in Hungerford, which has played host to Romans, a civil war army and the planning of the D-Day landings. Meanwhile, Studley Castle in Warwickshire was used as a training camp for the Women's Land Army during the World Wars. 
Find out more and book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk.